Hello, and welcome to Line One, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Childhood chronic illness is a growing concern in the United States, with 40% of school-aged children and adolescents experiencing at least one condition. Nutrition, movement, environmental toxins, and genetics play a role in this progression. Equally important is the role of nutrition, gut health, and lifestyle interventions in preventing undesired gene expression and managing the prevention of chronic illness and behavior problems in our children. Joining us today is Ms. Ashley Koch. She is a functional nutritionist, mother, and wellness advocate. She has a Master's of Science degree in functional nutrition and cares for children and adolescents both virtually and in person at BioLounge, a functional medicine practice in Portland, Oregon. Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Jill. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you. And you can also join our conversation. Are you struggling to care for a child that is chronically sick? Are you looking for ways to set your child up for a lifetime of healthy eating and body awareness? Have you found a way for nutrition and lifestyle changes to work along with traditional medicine? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 907-550-8433, 907-550-8433. Or you can email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Welcome again, Ashley. You know, I know you personally, as you know. Uh, we grew up together in the same town uh, in Pittsburgh. And currently, you are providing nutrition and wellness guidance for my family to help prevent certain conditions while treating others as part of our medical team. So I'm excited to share with others what you've taught me, what you've taught my family through our work together. So most of us have heard about nutritionists, but we may not have heard about functional medicine nutritionists. Can you share with us more about functional nutrition? Yes. And before I dive into functional nutrition, it's such an honor to be here because Dr. Jill was one of my role models growing up. And so it's such a treat that I get to work with her and support her family. So thinking a little bit about functional medicine nutrition, when I'm working as a nutritionist, my goal is really to prevent and reverse chronic disease and to promote the optimal function of your body. And when I'm thinking about the optimal function of a body, I'm thinking about how do we address biochemical imbalances that are present in an individual that's sitting in front of me, regardless of the diagnosis or whatever symptoms they're describing. And if we think about nutrition, we're thinking about it as the process of taking in food and using it for growth, metabolism, and repair of the body. And in my work, I want to understand where there's a breakdown in this process of growth, metabolism, and repair. And so what I love most about being a functional medicine nutritionist is that the work allows me to be an investigator, and I get to explore many factors that could be contributing to someone's issues, which might include poor diet, deficiencies, food sensitivities, infection, stress, and so many other things. Wow. Well, share your story with us. What led to your desire to return to school in your adult life to study functional nutrition? Yeah, so I think my journey really starts back in childhood. 
So as a kid, I always really had a desire to care for other people and help other people. But I was also a really sick kid myself. I struggled with a lot of anxiety. I also had a lot of allergies. I was allergic to the world. I went to the allergist and they would inject you with all of the things and I would light up like a Christmas tree. Oh, no. I had, <laughs> I had sinus infections. I had antibiotics frequently and I had eczema up and down my body. And then as a teenager, it only continued and in came the chronic migraines that led to hospital visits. I had terrible PMS. And then as I got to college, all of those symptoms stayed with me, and I started to have really bad stomach aches, and it impacted my ability to be social and do all the things I wanted to do. I had a lot of amazing providers treating me and medications I would carry around to thrive. But what is really fascinating to me as I look back is none of my providers ever asked me what I was eating. And if they would have asked me what I was eating, I would have told them that I loved white foods. I was eating tons of pasta and bread. I was eating endless excess sugar, processed foods, candy and soda. And all of these symptoms were a product of my body wasn't thriving and getting what it needs. And as I fast forward in my early 20s, I moved to San Francisco and I started cooking in the kitchen and using whole foods and feeling better. I then met my husband who was passionate about organic food and knowing where your food came from. And I started using these techniques in the kitchen and feeling even better. And then it really ended at having my daughters. I sought the care of a functional medicine pediatrician. My daughter started to have same, some of the same chronic health issues in early childhood that I struggled with. And my pediatrician and doctors showed me how to use nutrition and supplementation and healing their guts to reverse their issues. And that's when I really got hooked. And I went back to pursue my master's so that I could help other people figure out how to do this for their families. That's an amazing story. I think many of us can relate to that. We're all searching for answers, you know, whether it be life questions or health questions or success questions. And if we're so lucky to find the answers, we want to share those answers with other people. And so that's certainly something that you're doing, and we appreciate it. Well, one thing I've noticed through our work together is that um, you investigate many aspects of our daily life, as you said, our medical history, and you also do a deep dive in our general medical labs as well as specific food and micronutrient testing. Is this a common practice among functional nutritionists? Yes. So during the intake process, we want to understand so many things about you or your child. We want to know how your child sleeps, how they're moving their body, the stressors, how they have managed their emotional behaviors, early life experiences and their health history, and so much more. I also ask patients about their daily energy, their regular bowel movements. For children, we want to understand how they're regulating their body throughout the day. And so many of these things are the foundation of what you might find if you work with a functional medicine provider. I also like to access labs. So some of the labs I use might be traditional labs that your insurance carrier would would cover, such as a complete blood count or a cardiometabolic panel, because you can learn a, a lot about what's happening inside a body by looking at these. Although in our practice, there are some state-of-the-art specialty labs that we really rely on that have become some of my best tools that get my patients results, um, such as food sensitivity testing, microbiome stool testing, testing looking for infections like parasite forms and systemic yeast, and micronutrient testing. And I think each functional medicine nutritionist works really differently, so some rely on testing and some might not. Now, some of these specialty testings um, can be quite expensive. Are there ways to help families and improve health without pursuing the testing? 
Yes, it's possible. Unfortunately, the specialty testing that I'm talking about isn't covered by insurance at this moment, but I'm hopeful someday the insurance companies will see value in this kind of preventative testing. Um, for us, we're lucky that we work with a patient population that they come in, they've been struggling for a long time, and they're ready to invest their discretionary income in testing that's going to get them results and get them feeling better so they can get back to the things they want to do. But for our patients with a more limited budget, we might rely on symptom profiles and health histories to guide us through their treatment. Um, and we do have tools that we can use, such as elimination diets, anti-inflammatory diets, supplementation. And based on their symptoms, we can try to address some of the things they're experiencing without testing, although it can be challenging. If they have an active infection and we can't use testing to identify that, then we might not get full resolution of their issues. So we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. So it's not something that should hold them back from seeking the help if they can't afford everything, you know, right away. There's still a place to start. Definitely. There's a place to start with everyone. So is there a difference between food allergen testing that we may get through our allergist office versus the laboratory workup that you were talking about? Yep. So for me, my favorite test that I use in practice is our custom food panel that we use from Vibrant America that evaluates markers of leaky gut. It looks at wheat and gluten sensitivity, and it looks at identifying specific foods that are causing inflammation in the body. And if you were to visit your allergy, you might allergist, you might get a test that's looking at an IgE response to food. And so that response is typically something you would see if your child eats something and they're getting rashes, hives, or anaphylactic reactions, you would probably know about them because you're carrying around an EpiPen. In the food testing that I'm using, I'm looking for IgA and IgG responses to food. And so I sort of think of IgA, IgG, and IgE as your body's defense system. These immunoglobulins are the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force of your body. And so each one of them might come out in reactivity to food, and your body is now mounting immune response and an inflammatory cascade. And so I'm looking for those kind of reactions from an IgA and an IgG perspective because I want to calm the inflammatory response. There are other food sensitivity tests on the market. Your allergist might use those to look for IgG and IgA responses, but for us in our clinic, we have tried other testing and we haven't gotten the same results. And in many cases, our clients get 80% resolution on their symptoms when we use this food sensitivity testing. So there are some other tests out there, and I've seen some, you know, online and television ads for testing that you can order. So for a person maybe that hasn't been struggling but just has an interest in improving their health, have you ever used some of these online testings that you can order for yourself, and is there any benefit to those? I haven't used them for myself, so I can't speak to them. I know others who have, and some have gotten results and some haven't. So it's really hard to promote something that I haven't used myself or looked at the research and the data of where, how they're getting their information. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so we're talking about these immunoglobulins. And so one of the things you mentioned was at the food, um, at the allergist's office, they're looking for severe allergies in your body mounting a severe response, which you probably known about versus looking for things that are causing inflammation in your body, where you may not have a severe allergy, but it's causing an inflammatory response, which is giving you these symptoms that are undesired. Is that a good summary? There's these little things happening inside the body, happening in tiny moments that add up and then they can create big symptoms. So it's not a direct response. You might not eat something and then get it. 
hive, but you might be having little processes happening in the body that over time lead to big symptoms. Little processes happening that lead to big symptoms. That makes sense. Well, let's get into childhood chronic illness. We've learned from you that you've struggled with illnesses throughout your childhood and adolescence. How does nutrition and lifestyle play a role in the prevention or treatment of certain illnesses? Yeah. So when I think about the body, I like to go to this granular level. So the body is made up of organs and organ systems, and organs are made up of tissues, and tissues are made up of cells. And healthy cells mean healthy tissues, which means healthy organs and a healthy body. So if we see dysfunction in an organ system or or an organ, I want to think about what does a cell need to thrive. And a cell really needs three things to thrive. It needs adequate nutrition, the ability to get rid of toxins that could be damaging it, and a proper environment. And those are the same things the body needs. So if there's any kind of illness or dysfunction, I'm thinking about is there adequate nutrition to let this body thrive? Are they able to get rid of toxins? And do they have the proper environment? Okay, I think we have a little issue with the sound here. But what I'm hearing is you need nutrition, the ability to get rid of toxins, and the proper environment. We're going to work on the the sound because I do think that that's really important for her to go through with us again and then talk about specific illnesses that may be caused by poor diet or lifestyle changes. One of the things uh, that she said that was really important at the beginning was the issue with um, small things adding up in our bodies. And that's something that I've noticed with my family is that there where so many small things causing inflammation that then lead to big responses. And when we started to identify the things that lead to this inflammation, we were able to eliminate it. Ms. Ashley, are you back with us? I'm back with us. I'm sorry about the tech issues. (laughs) Yes. Well, due to COVID, we are all connecting virtually. And so we all have to deal with these technology issues everywhere. We all understand it. We're doing the best we can, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, go ahead and share with us. Um, I'm not sure what you heard, but we were talking about the body really needs three things to thrive. And so we were talking about adequate nutrition, the ability to get rid of toxins, and a proper environment. And if we can focus on these things, we can prevent or treat illness. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is there's chemical reactions happening in the body each day. And how do we get the nutrients in the body to support these reactions? So every bite at the end of your fork has the ability to be inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. So really thinking about what you're putting in your body and the information you're giving your body about how you want to feel. And that's important to know, the information we're giving our body. And are we ready for that inflammation or information? Because that's what I found. There may be some big changes that are called for. Are we ready to make those changes? Well, tell us a bit about the specific illnesses that may be caused by poor diet or lifestyle. I think there's many illnesses that can be caused or the diet or lifestyle can be contributing to or exacerbating. So we know that overnutrition or undernutrition can cause disease. Although the body's complicated and with so much chronic disease, we can't always pinpoint one cause. But we do know poor nutrition and lifestyle play a role in obesity, heart disease diabetes, cancer, metabolic syndrome, and so much more. We also know there's other common conditions we're seeing in our children that are linked to poor nutrition and lifestyle, 
And we've seen firsthand that improving the modifiable lifestyle factors can really lead to better outcomes for our children. So just as poor diet and lifestyle have the ability to cause the progression of a disease, a great diet and lifestyle has the ability to reverse the damage or impact of a disease. And one of my favorite um, quotes that really I encountered during a lecture when I was getting my master's degree is from Dr. Michael Stone, who is a family physician in Oregon. And he said, you can turn on and off your genes within three to six hours by what you eat, what you do, what you think, by how you sleep, how you move, and how you have relationships. It is by this that you can create a healthy life and reverse chronic conditions. And I think that really stuck with me, and that's really the root of the work I do every day with patients is really focusing on the things we have the ability to impact. Oh, that's a great quote. Well, in your practice, what illnesses do you provide guidance to manage with proper nutrition? Are there specific things that you specialize in? Yes. So for me, I see adults and children, and each individual that walks into the clinic is incredibly unique. I treat a range of disease and dysfunction in the body. I work with patients with autoimmune disease, digestive disorders, type 1 and type 2 diabetes, women experiencing dramatic hormonal shifts and symptoms. As far as children, I've seen children with eczema, allergies, asthma, ADHD, autism and sensory processing disorder, and sometimes anxiety. And I think what's possible is all of these things still really start at the same place of focusing on the same core values that can improve how the body is doing. And I've witnessed individuals with all of these conditions see their symptoms improve. When you mention these illnesses, some of them, I don't think we typically think about nutrition as being, you know, first line. Like when you mentioned asthma, um, eczema, I, I I guess I would understand because sometimes, you know, the food that we eat or allergens can cause issues with our skin. But I guess asthma is not something that I, you know, had thought about before. Or ADHD, I've seen some research about um, nutrition and changes that can be made in ADHD. Are you finding gains with your patients that have made some of these changes in their asthma severity or... Definitely. I think it depends on what you're coming forward with. So if you're working with someone who has asthma or allergies, the goal would be to calm some of the inflammatory and immune responses so that you're seeing less episodes, um, you're seeing less reactivity. It really depends on the symptoms that come forward. So when we're seeing someone with ADHD or sometimes with autism, we also find that digestive symptoms are present. So a lot of these kids are experiencing belly aches. And so we start from that place of how do we improve the digestive system, and then we often see an improvement in the other things they're experiencing, and we just want to find the place of what is optimal function for this body, um, and how can we calm some of the reactivity. You also mentioned anxiety. How are we using nutrition? Lifestyle changes, I can see. How are we using nutrition to decrease anxiety? Well, if you think about all the chemical processes happening in the body, they require a lot of adequate nutrients to be successful. So one of the ways I think about anxiety is I often think about gut health. So if we start with the gut and we think that three quarters of our neurotransmitters are living within the gut, and these are chemical messages, messengers sending messages around our body. And so if we can use nutrition to protect our gut and to protect our microbiome, then we can improve some of the symptoms that might be happening. If we have a dysregulated gut, sometimes that allows our gut to be leaky, and then it sends toxins that are sneaking out of our gut, and they send them to our brain, and they can cause things like anxiety 
and overwhelm and other symptoms throughout the body. And so I'm thinking about how do we get adequate nutrition, support gut health, and to calm some of the things patients are experiencing, or it might be about addressing an infection that can be leading to anxiety. There's many ways we could tackle it. Very interesting. And we are going to get more into gut health because I know that is super important. But we do have a caller. So I would like to welcome Kristen from Anchor Point to line one. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, I used to work as a grocery clerk in grocery stores and in warehouses. And I noticed many of the young people buy a lot of pre-made stuff. Uh, so once, once I finally asked uh, a couple, well, why are you buying all this pre-made things? And they said, well, we only have a microwave in our little apartment or a little cabin, and we don't know how to cook. And I'm thinking, oh. And it kept coming up all the time that these people did not know how to uh, cook fresh fruits and vegetables in microwaves or in small uh, ranges or maybe you only have one, two, or three, uh, of, you know, rings for boiling water and cooking things on. They didn't know how to use slow cookers. They, did, they literally did not know how to cook. Right. So do you ever run into that problem, and how? what do you no, normally suggest for these people? Because eating a lot of pre-made stuff does not sound healthy over the long run especially for a nutritionist? Oh, great question. Great question, Kristen. Ashley, what do you think about that? I love this question, Kristen. So when I think about that, often there are um, individuals we work with that are still trying to figure out cooking. And I think really finding access to these tools is important. We are really lucky to have the internet at our fingertips. And one of the ways I learned to cook was through YouTube. So I think for these individuals, it's figuring out access to learning how to cook. And I know there's programs in many cities that can help with this, that can help families learn how to use whole quality foods within their limitations. And so sometimes the starting point is how do we get you cooking and what are the tools you need to start cooking and how do we get information about around how to cook because I agree having these prepackaged processed foods is not ideal for our health. Is there a difference between the meals, you know, there are pre-made meals versus processed foods that are found in a box? Is there a difference health-wise between those two things? Yeah, definitely. I think as far as when you're getting food, as close to its natural form as possible is ideal. So there are places that are providing pre-made food that are incredibly healthy that we can access if we can't cook. But then I think there are packaged foods that are overly processed that we have to be concerned about, the interactions that are happening in our body that don't serve us. Okay, excellent. Well, we have to take a break, but when we come back, let's like dive deeper into gut health, Okay. You are listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage at 550-8433. After this short break, we will continue our discussion of childhood nutrition and its effect on gene expression and chronic illness with functional nutritionist Ashley Koch as Line 1 continues statewide. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. I'm joined by guest Ms. Ashley Koch, who's a functional nutritionist at BioLounge in Portland, Oregon. She has a passion for pre- protecting our gut health to improve immunity, detoxification, and decrease inflammation. Have you noticed changes in your child's behavior as a direct effect of their diet? Have you received a diagnosis of ADHD and want to know some of the lifestyle changes to incorporate in your treatment plan? Call us toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 550-8433. That's 907-550-8433 or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Ms. Ashley, can you share with us some of the key things you look for when evaluating the overall health of a child? Yep. So one of the places we start are what are the major symptoms your child's experiencing? And we have an extensive symptom questionnaire, and we also then sit down in a 75-minute appointment, and we listen to parents or children describe the symptoms they're experiencing that are impacting their daily lives. We also want to understand, does your child have energy? How are they sleeping? Are they waking up rested? Do they get sick frequently? Are they physically active? And we get a sense of what are they eating? And we also love to talk about their bowel movements and figure out what's happening with their digestive system, um, which really ties into our passion around digestive health and gut health. So we want to know, are they having acid reflux, bloat, what's stomach aches, anything that could be impacting their health. If the child has a traditional uh, pediatrician, do you work together with the pediatrician to identify illness and work with the pediatrician for a treatment plan? So we haven't interacted that much with pediatricians. Sometimes we collaborate and sometimes we are are, you know, adding on to the care they're already getting. Some of our patients come to us with a diagnosis and they want to explore ways to improve their child's outcome. Some of them come and they have no idea why the body isn't functioning where they want it to be and we need to investigate and explore that. And we sometimes collaborate with other providers. So we might find something that's beyond our scope of practice and we have a great community of other providers and doctors that we work with to make sure we can get the care we need for our patients if it's not something that we can address. So there is definitely a lot of collaboration between providers to make sure the kids get the results they need. That's excellent. You know, there are some of us that may be doomed. That's kind of maybe a bad word or a little dramatic. But before we begin, because we have these genetics that are handed down to us, a number of diseases that we may be genetically predisposed to. Is there a way to prevent illnesses that we've inherited? Which kind of takes you back to the quote you said earlier. 
Yeah. So I'm a true believer that our genes are not our destiny. I'm actually uh, just poured through Dr. Ben Lynch's book called Dirty Genes. So if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend picking up this book as he dives really deep into the science and information around our genetics and what turns them on and off. For me, the work I do is really preventative. So it's in service to if you might be someone who has genetic polymorphisms and you're trying to prevent your genetics from taking you down a path you don't want to travel, diet and lifestyle are really the things you can use and the things that you can impact to really change that. I think for me, I remember when my daughter was younger and she was really struggling with symptoms that were taking over her life and we worked with specialists and doctors and she was feeling better and we really had to think about how this was impacting her and her doctor told me, you know, you're going to show her how to eat, how to sleep, how to take care of herself, how to limit her exposures so that her genetics do not come to life and then she's probably going to go to college, abandon everything I taught her, stay up really late, eat everything she wants and maybe engage in reckless behavior. Because of her predisposition, she'll probably start to struggle and she'll come home and say, I don't feel well and we just have to remind her where she has to live her life to feel good. And so I think we need to give our kids these tools in the beginning so that we can they can have the path of how do I make my body feel well and if they get off that path they can figure out how to get back on. That's right. Give them the tools that they need to live a healthy lifestyle or be successful like we do in all other aspects of life, right? Well, we have yeah. a caller uh, for you, Ms. Ashley. We have Melissa on the line from Fairbanks. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Line One. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, so I'm a mother of a very picky toddler, and it seems like the only thing she wants to eat are hot dogs. And she eats a lot of fruit, but I keep trying to give her vegetables, and it's really the only vegetable she eats is, like, ketchup and pizza sauce. So I was just wondering if you had any tips of for parents of very picky children for trying to improve their nutrition. Oh, yes. Ashley, how can you help this mom of a picky eater? This is a great question, Melissa, and something I've spent a lot of time reading and thinking about in my earlier years. And so I love the work of Ellen Satter. Um, she really has this division of um, responsibility model that really helped me in the early years and with some of the clients I've had the chance to work with. And in this model, she talks about you as the parent are in control of what, when, and where your child eats. And your child is responsible for if and how much they're going to eat. And so if we both just kind of take on our own responsibilities and do the best we can. And so my best advice for parents who have the picky eaters, as long as it's not severe picky eating, which when it is severe picky eating, I recommend working with um, a food therapist who can help with these sorts of challenges. But if it's just regular picky eating, I think thinking about the food that's coming inside your home and what kind of meals you're offering and the distracting foods that might be in your home that are getting in the way of making better choices. And so really focusing on your what and the regular meals when and where, and then just keep offering diversity of foods and hoping that your child engages and modeling healthy eating behaviors for your child because they're watching and learning from us. But it's really challenging. There's a lot of ways to work with picky eaters, and that's just the beginning of the conversations we have with parents. Thank you, Ashley. That was that was good information. Um, we have several emails that have come in, so let me get to one. We have Tess from Eagle River, and this question is the question that you've answered many times for me that I've struggled with. So, Tess, I, I feel you with this. Uh, she says, hello, my six-year-old daughter has celiac disease. It is hard enough to manage her health and nutrition at home. However, she started kindergarten this year 
and school and play dates and birthday parties have added, added a whole new set of challenges. It seems like every week there is another school party, birthday with cupcakes, well-meaning parents passing out candy as a treat. Her teachers have been amazing, but her restrictive diet means she is often left out. She has a debilitating autoimmune disease, but the emotional toll of being excluded from these everyday food-sharing situations has been much more difficult. Do you have any advice for dealing with dietary choices in the classroom, Ashley? Yes, I can relate to this question as my daughter also has celiac and this is something we navigated for many years. And I can tell you my best advice is it gets easier and it gets better. But I think at this age, it's really challenging to navigate all those social scenarios and all of these interactions where these things come up. In this time frame, I really focused on having options available for my daughter when we had those kind of interactions. So we had worked with the school, they understood the guidelines, they understood the rules, and we had backup plans at the school. So if there was a party, there would be something there that my daughter could participate in and enjoy. Um, also, if we're going to a birthday party, I might ask the parents, what are they serving? So I can bring something for my child that feels similar to whatever other children are experiencing. But I think it's advocating for your child, as well as I really see this restriction for my child as a superpower. So many kids are walking around in this world and they have things that are different about them. And this is just one way my child had to learn how to function in the world and thrive and be a little bit different. And it also becomes one of her superpowers. She now advocates for herself. She knows what she needs. She doesn't get frustrated when she's missing out on the birthday party or the school party. So it gets easier as they get older and you're doing an amazing job thinking about your child. Yes, that's right. Thank you so much for that. And we have a couple emails, I think, that we may answer their questions as we go. So let's get to the guts of it. Of it. What is, what is gut health? Why is gut health so important? Everyone is talking about it. Yeah. But I think... Nope, it's going in and out again. Sorry, Ms. Ashley. Technology again. We're going to reconnect with um, Ms. Ashley, but that last question really um, resonated with me. Uh, my, We don't have celiac disease, but just thinking about nutrition and when you come across all of the results and you see the things that cause inflammation in your child, you need to make these changes and we want to make these changes, but it's so difficult because there are so many people that impact our child's life. They're not in a bubble. And so... Making sure that these healthy uh, lifestyle choices are available, but then also how do we work with our children so that they're not feeling left out? They're not feeling like they're being excluded. That has been, you know, an issue that we're learning to manage this year. Another question that came in uh, that we'll have her answer is an email from Marie, and she actually wants to go back to the anxiety discuss discussion to see what foods do you recommend that will help relieve anxiety and what foods to avoid. So, Ms. Ashley, we'll have you um, continue with the gut health, and then we'll go back and answer that question. Great. All right. So when I'm thinking about the digestive system, I'm thinking about the many jobs the digestive system plays. And so our gastrointestinal tract is really about digesting and absorbing our food protecting and defending our body and making sure we have proper elimination. 
And so when I'm thinking about the digestive tract, there's so many things that are supporting these processes that are really important in the body. And that takes us to the gut. So one of the reasons the gut has become a really big deal is because, as I said earlier, we now know three quarters of the body's neurotransmitters live here. So those chemical messengers that are making signals to the body are living in the gut. We also know two-thirds of the body's immune system lives within the gut. So if we think about the gut, it has metabolic activity that's greater than the liver, and the liver is already a really big deal to protect and detox our body. And and then another reason the gut's important is that 70% of Americans are suffering from digestive-related illness. So, so often if we can address these digestive issues and the gut, we can improve their health outcomes. When we're referring to gut health, we're thinking about the vast ecosystem of bacteria, virus, and fungi that primarily live in the colon, but they're also present in the small bowel, the stomach, the mouth, the nose, and the skin. And the research is moving so quickly. We're understanding how gut health is impacting our health. When I think about the gut, I think about the bacteria that are living there. We have beneficial bacteria that supports our health, and we have opportunistic bacteria that's looking to cause negative impacts on our health. And so we're often thinking about how do we protect the balance between the beneficial and the opportunistic bacteria through diet and lifestyle. But I could talk about the gut all day. There are so many reasons we should focus on gut health and make it a priority in our lives. I know you're so passionate about gut health. How can parents protect their family's gut health? Yeah, so I think if your child is suffering from digestive health issues um, or having issues with proper elimination, so constipation or diarrhea, I think it's really important to seek the health of a provider and resolve those issues and try to figure out what the root cause of them is without just putting a Band-Aid on it. I think it's also, you know, so often we talk about poop and constipation. So we really need to get that part of your child's system going so that they can have proper function and live a healthy life. Some other ways we focus on protecting gut health is anti-inflammatory diet. So a diet that's rich in colorful plants, so vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, beans and lentils, a variety of food, because diversity of food feeds the good bacteria in our gut and allows us to thrive. I also think most of us are not getting enough fiber in our lives, and fiber is really important for our digestive system and our gut health, um, as well as doing our best to eliminate exposures to environmental toxins and excess medications because these can have an impact on our gut. But those are just a few of the ways we talk with our uh, patients about supporting their gut health. You mentioned the gut barrier earlier. Can you tell us more about leaky gut and how that impacts our health? Yep. So the gut barrier is brilliant. It's protecting you from the outside world. So if you think about it, a lot of the pathogens we interact with are coming through our nose and mouth, which is why our immune system is living in the gut. And so this gut barrier is protecting us from the outside world. And so often when we have issues in the body, we're seeing a presence of leaky gut. Um, or intestinal permeability. And what that means is the gut barrier, the gut lining within the gut is torn, and things that are inside of your gut are now getting outside into your body and causing systemic inflammation and systemic problems. And so I think it's really important that we work to protect the gut barrier in order to protect your health. Thank you. We have an email from Barbara, and we are going to get back to the other email about anxiety. But Barbara, uh, thanks you for having this conversation. She's the mother of two boys, and due to recurrent mastitis, she underwent 17 rounds of antibiotics in the past three and a half years while she was nursing her children. 
And so she's concerned about their microbiome due to passively receiving these antibiotics. And she's hoping you can speak about probiotic supplements that actually work, the role of fermented foods to help rebuild a strong, healthy gut. Ashley? Yeah, so that's, that is a wonderful question. So, yes, we do know that antibiotics take a toll on our gut microbiome, but then we can focus on growing and supporting the health of our microbiome with what we do after we have antibiotics. So that whole food, colorful diet filled with variety is going to help you. That fiber is going to help you. Those are really important. And then some additional things we bring in are things like probiotics, And so probiotics are supplements that come in and they fill the space for a temporary amount of time to address a specific symptom. I can't say that I promote one probiotic because in the research, we now understand that there are different probiotic strains that treat specific symptoms. So if your child is experiencing constipation, we might recommend a specific probiotic that can support that. Um, If your child has frequent upper respiratory infections, we might suggest a probiotic that supports that. So they're temporary tools while you're working on supporting better gut health through diet and lifestyle. And then I also do love fermented foods. So fermented vegetables, as many of them as you can get access to, these are probiotic foods. And I also recommend prebiotic foods such as sunchokes, beets, garlics, onion, banana, These are all things that are feeding your gut microbiome and helping the beneficial bacteria thrive. So those things are really important, um, and I definitely recommend those to parents. So prebiotic foods feed our gut microbiome. Do they repair the gut microbiome? So they allow the beneficial bacteria to get the energy they need to thrive then creating positive end products that that messengers on your body that tell your body what you want it to do. So they're food for the beneficial bacteria. So as much as we can eat those prebiotic foods and feed them, that's great. As well as fiber is is doing things for the beneficial bacteria in your gut. And fiber is doing things for the beneficial bacteria of the gut. And then the probiotic foods or probiotics come in in order to, oh, like fermented vegetables. Those are probiotic foods. So probiotic foods come in to treat specific symptoms. And they're specific strains. They can come in and they can solve a temporary problem like they might compete with other bacteria that's trying to be fed that wants to cause problems. So the probiotics can come in and they can compete with that and solve temporary problems while you're trying to address the entire ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. There's so much more to discuss, and we definitely want to have time to talk about sugar, but we need to take our last break. And then we'll discuss more specific changes and additions we can make to the diet. We're going to take another short break for the stations down the line. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, or in Anchorage at 550-8433-550-8433. We'll continue our discussion on using proper nutrition to mitigate chronic illness when we return. You're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. 
Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. Welcome back to Line One, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. I'm joined today by guest Ms. Ashley Koch, who is a functional nutritionist at Bio Lounge in Portland, Oregon. She has a passion for protecting our gut health, leading to improved immunity, detoxification, decreased inflammation. Have you noticed changes in your child's behavior? Have you noticed changes in your child's bowel movements? These things can be a direct effect of their diet. Have you received a diagnosis and you want to know if some lifestyle changes or nutrition changes can help your child? Give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752, 1-888-353-5752, in Anchorage at 550-8433, 550-8433. Or email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. Ashley, we're back and we learned a bit about gut health. And I do want to get to this email that we received. And this email was about uh, nutrition and anxiety from Marie. What foods do you recommend that will help relieve anxiety and what foods to avoid? And, you know, really, is this question, do we have to do that food testing in order to know what foods are should be avoided in each individual person. Yeah. So I think if you focus on a diet of whole foods, that is going to promote um, an anti-inflammatory reaction. And so I think that's the start. Starting point includes to as close to their natural form as possible. So colorful plants, making sure you're getting adequate protein and quality fat are really important for the function of the body. But then I also think this is where you have to explore gut health and is there anything going on with the gut that needs to be repaired? Um, and then as you're talking about the testing, sometimes figuring out specific inflammatory foods that are causing a reaction for someone experiencing anxiety and pulling back those inflammatory foods can really resolve some of the anxiety that a patient is experiencing. And because those inflammatory foods are stressors on the body, and so you pull them back and you lower the stress on the body. You focus on some other healing tools. We also address stress. That's really important. If we you eat the best diet in the world, but you're living in chronic stress, it's really hard to address the impact stress is having on the body. So it's not just about what you eat. It's about how you sleep, the stress, the toxins you're being exposed to, as well as your diet. And we've seen our children have been experiencing much more stress. I feel like much more stress than we experienced in, in our day and just certainly a different type of stressor. So all of that is impacting. That's part of their lifestyle that's impacting their health as well. Definitely. Yeah, I think these kids are experiencing a lot of things. So the more we can help take the load off their body and help their body deal with stress and give them tools of how do you manage stress and how do you respond to stressful situations. Those things also improve your gut health. So your gut can be destroyed by stress. And so if you have a lot of stress, you want to focus on that as well. And there are physical manifestations of our, our stress. There's physical manifestations to our mental health, too. And so I've, you know, seen patients that have had, you know, large amounts of stress and anxiety, and they're presenting with 
diarrhea or constipation and, and stomach cramps and stomach pains. So definitely something we need a multimodal approach to take care of. Yeah. Yep. I love that treating the whole patient. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about sugar and inflammation. Is sugar bad for everyone? I think sugar in moderation can be present in a healthy diet, but I like to think about what is happening in the body when we get excess sugar. And so excess sugar, you would think something with added sugar. So maybe you're going to have a donut today. And in the body, I see that as a sugar explosion. Our body eats a donut, it heads down the digestive tract, and then our pancreas flips out and realizes that this level of sugar is not natural and it starts dumping a bunch of insulin. So basically your pancreas is in an emergency state dumping insulin and your blood sugar is spiking really fast and your body doesn't need this much glucose for fuel. So then it's trying to find somewhere to put it. Where is this parking lot? So it might send it to your fat, your adipose tissue, and if you're increasing this adipose tissue, you're increasing fat storage and inflammation, or it might send excess to the liver to produce triglycerides. So your body is getting all this excess glucose, and it doesn't know what to do with it, and it needs to respond. In moderation, your body has the ability to adapt to this process. But in the standard American diet, you wake up in the morning, and your child has a big bowl of cereal a sugar explosion. And then your child heads to school and they have a snack, one of these millions of food substances we call snacks that are filled with added sugar. And again, they have a sugar explosion. They head to lunch and they're having candy and gummies, another sugar explosion. Explosion. After dinner, they need dessert. It happens again. And so these insulin spikes are happening all day and the body is trying to keep up. And so that much excessive sugar can be an inflammatory event in the body. Um, versus if you think about if you eat an apple and you're, there is some natural sugar that exists within the apple, but it doesn't spike your blood sugar and it doesn't signal to your body to store extra sugar. It actually signals to your body, let's go into fat burning mode and decrease fat storage and decrease inflammation. So you just have to understand that what an apple can do to the body is very different than what a donut can do and find your relationship with sugar imbalance. I think another really important thing to think about is the immune system. We're talking about that so much right now. And it's important to understand that when you eat sugar, you shut down your immune system for up to five hours post-sugar. So if we're in a state that we're trying to improve our immune health, having sugar all day throughout the day is not in service to supporting our immune function. You shared so many great nuggets with us right then. I think we'll all have to just go back and listen to this again because there's so much valuable information for children and for adults. So do you think that sugar should be restricted from all children's diets? I don't think it should be restricted from all children's diets, but I think we need to really think about our family's relationship with sugar. So we also know that sugar lights up the same parts of the brain that other addictions do, and that children's ability to control decision-making isn't fully developed in their bodies. So I think parents have to consider what kind of relationship do they want to build around sugar with their child. I don't see it as restrictions. I see it as a parenting approach. Every family has a different parenting approach. As a parent, I set boundaries around sleep and technology and other elements of my children's life, and I do the same for sugar. So if you have a child who loves sugar and is having, you know, wants sugar all the time, you have to really think about how you're going to approach that versus a child who really isn't that interested in sugar. You might not have to set restrictions or boundaries for that child. 
I also think it's important to understand there could be things happening inside the body that are driving their cravings for sugar. So often we see systemic yeast infections in our patients, and yeast loves sugar. And so if your child is walking around craving sugar all the time, there might be some infections going on that need to be addressed because the yeast is demanding more sugar and it's hard for you to control that in your body. Yeast naturally exists in your body, but out of control, it starts to take over the ecosystem. So maybe your child's sugar addiction has something to do with systemic yeast infection. So there's many ways to explore sugar and talk about sugar within your family and your children's health. Thank you. Now, some families have eliminated sugar in exchange for sugar-free alternatives such as aspartame, stevia, splenda, and others. Is this a healthy substitution, or what do you recommend if you just need some sweetness? Yeah, so if my favorite alternatives to sugar really are maple, honey, for those who are trying not to spike their blood sugar, I also like monk fruit. So those would be the alternatives that I'm going towards versus, you know, some of the others you mentioned aren't necessarily serving our health and some of them can be inflammatory. So really focusing on sugars in their most natural form as possible or sweeteners in their natural form. Excellent. Now, when you talk about sugar, you kind of have to talk about carbohydrates as well. And sugar should sugar and carbohydrates be used interchangeably? Some dieters I've spoken to who are trying to lose weight were unable to lose weight until they added carbs back into their diet. And then there are many people that talk about a diet free of carbohydrates altogether. Do you have any advice about this? Yeah, so I, I really think that not all carbohydrates are bad. And I also think that weight loss isn't just about calories in and calories out. What we are really working on in our practice is what are the biochemical processes that are working and not working, and then figuring out how to get your body to work where it needs to be. So in terms of carbohydrates, vegetables and fruit are carbohydrates, and those are really important for our health. And so it's figuring out what your body needs and the right level. You also want metabolic flexibility. Your body should be able to transfer from using carbohydrates as a fuel source to also using fat as a fuel source. And sometimes if we have a diet filled with too much sugar and too many carbohydrates, our body never gets the chance to use fat as a fuel source. And so we're going to look at you as an individual or your child and try to figure out where you sit in this and find a diet that fits your life and what your body is needing based on some of the test results and information we're getting about your body. When we're taking care of our children and trying to uh, model this healthy eating style, is there a concern that with food restrictions, we could be promoting eating disorders later in life? And how can we teach our child to live a healthy lifestyle without promoting eating disorders or even body dysmorphia? Yeah, this is something I'm really sensitive to and I think about a lot. And so I think if we teach our kids from early on that food can be enjoyed, but it's also about building health, and we set some foundations early on about our relationship with food, then later on they can see it as a tool for health um, and not just a reward system without you being the one providing all the restrictions. So if early you focus on I'm in charge of what, when, and where my child eats, and they're in charge of if and how much, that is allowing them to control their relationship with food. And then as they get older, giving them more freedom to control their relationship with food, they're going to be outside the home, getting food from places outside of your home, and you have to create a foundation and trust that they can make these choices on their home, in on their own. But really, you have to give them the intrinsic value, set the foundation of this is about health and enjoyment and have a healthy relationship, model your healthy relationship with food in your body because they're watching you. And hopefully if you model that for them, they can have it with themselves. 
Thank you. We have an email from Chris uh, thanking you for the program. And Chris has said that they've had great benefits, direct benefits, from working with hospital nutritionists for wound healing. After the realization that the body and cell chemistry are so important to wound healing, it only makes sense that proper nutrition are most important. Question is, in the older in the older age range, the lower extremities are more challenging for wound healing. And do you have any recommendations, including nutrition recommendations, wound healing in in the legs? Yeah. So if we talked earlier about nutrition is the act the process of taking in food so that the body can repair. And so that's just it. it whether you're eight or whether you're eighty adequate nutrition is going to help your body with repair. And we know some of the functions in the body might be declining with age. And so the more we can focus on adequate nutrition and help these individuals, the more they have the ability to heal their body if they're dealing with any sort of injury or wounds. So you're exactly right, Chris. Adequate nutrition matters for these patients just as it matters for our children. Thank you. You know, we are, of course, running out of time. I did want you to touch on environmental toxins because that's yet another thing that we need to look at. But I think we will have to save that one for for later. You've covered so much for us. And one of the things I, I heard is really just improving all of our relationships with food and helping our child to develop a healthy relationship with food and perhaps not connecting food choices with with pleasure, you know, especially when it comes to these parties and things. The fun is the party itself. Should we redefine what dessert is? Yeah, I often think about there's there was this idea that dessert and sugar is a reward. And so I think dessert and sugar are things that happen in life and we can enjoy them, but they don't always have to be a reward. I also think about dessert. Sometimes frozen fruit is a great dessert. Um, so it doesn't always have to be filled with sugar for it to be dessert. Um, so that's something we do in our house. Some nights we have frozen fruit after dinner and that is dessert. Um, but I also think, you know, healthy food is love. So if we reframe that conversation around sugar is love. So, oh, you did something great. We're going to go get a scoop of ice cream because you're amazing. Healthy food is also loving our children. And so it's going to set them up for a lifetime of long-term health. So if we just reframe that, that conversation and think of healthy food as love and send that message to our children. You have given us some amazing information. I'm definitely going to have to follow up with you afterwards so that we can continue this conversation and share your great wealth of knowledge. We've come to the end of our program. Our thanks to our guest, Ms. Ashley Koch, for being with us today. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Thank you. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.